0: We're going to be in this book for five weeks, possibly six, and as I worked through this, I read a couple commentaries, and and one of them, I think it was the first one I read, said, we do not recommend you preach through this book, make it one sermon, because it's one story, and I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Well, we're going to preach through the book, we're going to make it five, five weeks, and uh, We're going to try to keep the idea of the whole story of the book of Esther in mind. But uh, I wanted first to bring a couple recommendations to you. I think it was this one that actually said that. But uh, if you're into Bible study at home, which I hope you are, and if you buy commentaries every once in a while, the way I buy commentaries, I don't buy commentary sets. I do have a couple commentary sets, but I like to buy individual commentaries of individual books. Because sometimes a, a writer of commentaries is really good on one book, but isn't as good on another book. And so if you can get individual commentaries, that sometimes is, a, is the easier way that you can save some money. But what I do is I go to Challies.com and Ligonier.org, And these two websites can, you, you just look top five or best commentaries on any particular book. And they will give you the top five conservative evangelical commentaries on that book and this right here is universally accepted by by conservative theologians and pastors as the best commentary on the book of esther and this is number two so every website i looked at pretty much said this was number one and this is number two and i just want to let you know how i do that and encourage you if you want to do that just ask me and i can get you those websites but if you're going through books of the bible in personal study this year Uh, Buy a good commentary this year on a particular book, and and the reason I love books and commentaries is is that reading is one of the most humble things that you can do because you're giving somebody else uh, a monologue into your life, and you're saying, hey, the writer of this book or the writer of this book, you're, you're letting them speak into your life and just listen to what they have to say. You don't have to agree with everything, but you just get to listen, and so it's one of the most humble things that you can do because you're saying, I'm going to let you speak into my life, and I'm just going to read what you have to say about a particular book of the Bible. And so these two have been the go-to commentaries for me as I've studied through this. Why don't we just go ahead and pray uh, one more time and ask for the Lord's help, and then we're going to get into the book of Esther. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, just, uh, we thank you for this story and the, the, the sermon series, Hidden in Plain Sight. It's titled that because you are there on every page of this book, even though your name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. You're all over the place. And so help us to find you, help us to see you, the God who is there. You are there, you are present in this book, and you are working to save your people and to keep your covenant promises to your unfaithful Israel. And uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. And I just ask the Holy Spirit, you'd lead this time, help me with this story to uh, just to clearly communicate it and help us to be encouraged and challenged by this Uh, by this woman in the story and by this man in the story and ultimately by your activity in and through them in the story. So just help us, and I trust God that you're going to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 11. God calls a man named Abram and says that through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth, and through through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and you're going to have children, and your offspring, your descendants, are going to be as, as many as the stars are in the sky. Well, Abram and his wife, Sarai, had no children. In fact, she was barren. And so for God to do this, it was going to happen, have to happen through miraculous means. It couldn't happen any other way. It wasn't going to be natural. She was in her, in her 90s. And 90-year-old women, in case you don't know, can't have babies. And this was the case back then as it is today. Well, God ends up having the last laugh and names... The boy tells, the, tells Abram and Sarah that they're going to name their children after they laughed about this news, as you would if you were in your, anywhere beyond your 40s and, and you heard you're going to have a baby probably, or your 50s, the lady would be like, <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, So Sarah laughed when she heard this news from Abram, and they ended up having this baby boy. God miraculously brought a baby boy, and his name was Isaac, which means the son of laughter. And so... The people of God had their beginnings through a miraculous, uh, just through miraculous means. And so Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac would grow up and become a man. Abraham would have uh, Ishmael as well, but Isaac would grow up, and he would have children. And he had Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob later would get his name changed to Israel, and Jacob would have 12 children. And his 12 boys, he would have more, more children, but he had 12 boys, and they would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the people of God were these 12 tribes of Israel. And now the people of God also have had their years of wandering. So they, when God called Abraham out of uh, out of the land of Ur, he brought them into the prom- to what would be the promised land, and he told them, your future generations are going to inherit this land here. But a f- big famine came, and Abraham had to go into... Uh, Egypt, And they went, down to, they went down to Egypt, and then um, they were there. And then uh, the, the story, as the story goes, God, they had to go there, and then they went back. They ended up going back into the promised land. And uh, then after being in the promised land, then there was the time of the judges and then the times of the kings. And then because of their rebellion, the people of God's rebellion in the, this promised land, uh, God told them, you're going to go into exile. And so after Solomon and his son Rehoboam, the kingdoms of Israel split from Israel into Jerusalem, and there was a king Jeroboam and then Solomon's son Rehoboam. And after that generation, they get overthrown, and what ends up happening is Babylon comes, and they overthrow Israel, and they bring them into exile. And then the people of God are in exile for approximately 70 years. God made a promise to them, I'm going to bring you back out of exile. And after about 70 years... Uh, Nehemiah and and Ezra, they end up leading this charge and, and God's people get to go out of Babylon and they go back into Jerusalem and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they end up going back into Jerusalem. Well, after that, this nation, this empire, the Persians rose up. You may have heard of King Xerxes I and the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire would overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And in the Babylonian Empire, there were still exiles, Israel, God's people who had not yet gone back to Jerusalem. And so what happened in Babylon is these people who were still Israelites, they were the Jewish people, they had not yet gone back to Jerusalem, they were still in exile beyond the 70 years, and the Persians came in, overthrow the Babylonians, and now the Persians are in charge of even the land of Israel, in, the, in charge of Jerusalem, and they take these exiles to the new capital city of the Persian empire, Susa, S-U-S-A, Susa. And this is where we find the book of Esther. There is new power. There's not, no longer the Babylonians. There's a new king, Asurias, who's in charge. And now there is Ezra and Mordecai, and there are God's people in the city, in this capital city of Persia. Named Susa. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And this is a story. This story, the Book of Esther, is a story of love. It's a story of hate. It's a it's a story of heroes and villains. There are ups and downs and twists and turns. And everybody loves everybody loves a good story. You hear a good story? Children love hearing stories. Adults love hearing stories. That's why we continue to watch movies and read books. And this story, specifically, spans 10 years in time. So from the beginning of the book of Esther to the end of the book of Esther, there is a 10-year period, so it's a 10-year process. And it tells this story of God's people living in exile, facing a threat of annihilation, which we will get to in chapter 3 and 4. And in the face of death, when this judgment of God's people would come down, Because of a wicked man, Haman, there ends up being a great exchange. And so through the courage of Esther and her cousin Mordecai, instead of God's people being killed, there was this great exchange and God's people would end up killing, instead of being killed, they would end up being the ones who did the killing and God brought judgment to 75,800 of his enemies. And so it's a pretty miraculous story. The book was written, this book, the book of Esther was written to remember this deliverance. And so God's people, since the time that they were delivered, have been celebrating in the festival of Purim. And they do this. It's happening this year to this day, in March of 2019. That, that feast is still happening. And the book of Esther is still read by Jewish people up to this day, remembering This saving moment where God saved his people through Esther and through Mordecai. the book has some interesting omissions in it. Some things that you would expect this book to say, it doesn't say. For instance, the book never mentions God. There's not one mention of Yahweh in the entire book. There's no mention of his law or his promises. Not one mention of his law or his promises. Esther and Mordecai never pray in this book. And they never externally observe God's laws. And they show even at times less than honorable character. And because of that fact, this story, this book, has been called into question over the years of whether or not it actually belongs in the Bible. But what we're going to see is that even though it omits these facts, even though those things are not there and the name of God, is not specifically mentioned, and the hero's actions are often sinful, it does not mean that God is not present in the book. His secret providence, God, at work, is at work, and it is hidden in plain sight. Sermon series name, Hidden in Plain Sight. Got it in this first sermon. He's all over the place, hidden in plain sight. He's there, and we see him everywhere. God is always the hero behind the heroes. And we're going to see a heroine and a hero in this book. And God ultimately is the one doing the saving work through broken People, this commentary author Karen Jobes, J-O-B-E-S or Jobes, like my wife Joby, uh, Jobes, has this to say about the book of Esther. Hang with me; it's a little bit long, but you're thinking people, so you can handle it. The book of Esther is perhaps the most striking biblical statement of what theologians call the providence of God. When we speak of God's providence, we mean that God, in some invisible way, governs all creatures and actions and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life, without the intervention of miraculous events. Not to exclude miraculous events, but just normal everyday life. When it seems like God is not working, He is working. The book of Esther is the most true-to-life biblical example of God's providence because it seems like God is absent. Even the most pagan corner of the world, God is ruling all things to the benefit of His people and the glory of His name. Even when His own people, like Esther and Mordecai, make decisions that come from ambiguous motives at best, or perhaps even outright disobedience, God is still providentially working through those things to fulfill his covenant promises surely romans eight twenty eight is a new testament summary of the message of the book of esther and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose so the thread that weaves the book of esther from chapter 1 to the end of the book And then to the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament is the providence of God. There is this thread that's woven through its pages where God is at work when it seems like he is absent. And maybe you've experienced times in your life like that. Where it felt like God had abandoned you or felt like God had left you alone and you were simply on your own. And the book of Esther is going to remind us we are not alone. These ordinary, everyday activities that feel so arbitrary and meaningless are not meaningless. God is at work in our lives. And the question that's presented in this book is, will God preserve His people? Will God preserve His people? Will He keep His promises to unfaithful Israel? And what we see in the land of Susa is that Mordecai even encourages Ezra to hide the fact, you will see this in a bit, that she is a Jewish woman. And that means it required her to not worship publicly. And so the unworshipping people in the land of Susa, in a pagan nation who had not now visibly been worshiping God, will God be faithful to them, even in their unfaithfulness? Will God preserve them? Will He keep His covenant promises? Does God have a plan? Is He active when it seems like He is absent? Or are the deists, agnostics, and atheists right? Are we on our own? in this world. There's some more facts about the book that I think will be helpful for us. Uh, This story takes place in actual real-time history. It really took place. These things aren't just mythical things that are written in in pages of a book for us to read and consider and get some nice, cute lessons about. This happened in history. It happened during the reign of King Assyrius of the Persian Empire. He reigned from 485 B.C. to 462 B.C., so this was after, again, the Babylonian exile and the return of God's people to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah brought the people and Ezra brought the people, but these Jewish people were left and they did not return. And so the exiled Jews had begun to be integrated into the life and the culture and the ways of the Persians. And we know that because there's simply no evidence that they were obeying or following God's laws in Susa. There's just no mention of it. So they're living as typical Americans. Not as Christian Americans. They're living as typical Babylonians, typical Persians. God's people in the midst of Persia living as Persians. Many of them forgotten God. Had God forgotten them? So when the Jews came under the threat of annihilation due to mean old Haman, would God do something about it? Well, He does. Turn your eyes to verse 1 through 9. Now in the days of Assyrius, the Assyrius who reigned from India and in Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Assyrius sat on his throne, his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media... The nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, and he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and a pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and velvet hangings fastened with the cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and uh, and marble pillars, and the couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of that P word, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There was no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff in his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Asurius. So, this is um, this scene that we get in these first nine verses. think the great Gatsby. Okay, remember that the, the, it, it, apparently it's a book, but there was a movie that came out a few years ago. And these Gatsby parties in the book and in the movies are these epic parties. They're like Solomon's parties, or at least they're they're parodies of Solomon's parties. And these parties are massive. It's like spare no expense, invite everybody you know. It it is hedonistic. It is is do what you wish um, kind of parties. And this party that this king, Asurius, threw made those parties kind of look like a a family get-together for a one-year-old birthday party this party went on for 180 days. 180 days of partying. Hey, what are you going to do tomorrow? Well, I'm going to sleep a little bit, and then I'm going to wake up. I'm going to drink all day long. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and then until I pass out and vomit, and then I'm going to do that again, and we're going to do that for 180 days. 180 days. And so the king wanted to show how powerful, how rich, how wonderful, and how glorious he was, and how compassionate he was, not just to the nobles, not just to the governors, and not just to the the warriors that were fighting for the army. He opened it up after all of that and said, Now, you poor, you paupers, you get to get on in this too. These golden cups aren't just for us. These are for you. And so you have all of the city of Susa here partying hard, and I think we have to assume that the people of God were in this hedonistic behavior as well. This whole city, for the whole province, rich, poor, wherever, whoever you were, you were in on this thing. Can you imagine the smells going on in that city? Whew. Goodness gracious, I am thankful for the day that I was born and the age that I was born because I really appreciate hot water for showers and indoor plumbing. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. It was elaborate, kind of like King Solomon. And then we find Queen Vashti is introduced in verse 9, and she was in charge of the women's ministry and had a party going on for the girls. It was a whole lot more than K Cups. They got in on this too. And so you had the whole land of Susa, the whole city of Susa, partying hard. And then the king gets offended. And here's what I'm going to do for the sake of time, because we're gonna working through two chapters today. I'm going to go through verses 10 through 22, and I'm going to give you the highlights. But here's what I want you to do, and I want to encourage you to do this. Over the next few weeks, over the next five or six weeks, on the ch- verses that I kind of summarize, because this, this is one big story that's happening through the book, as I'm summarizing some of this stuff, I want you to go back and just read it. Right, go, go home during a commercial of the playoff football, uh, open your Bible, read the story, it doesn't take too long, and read the chapter. So anything that I summarize, just go back and read through it, and then jot down some notes, or think through it, just so you kind of know, know what's going on. So verses 10 through 22, I'm going to summarize for us, okay? So here's the deal. What happened through all this party is King Assyrius wanted to show off his queen, and he wanted them all to see how beautiful and how wonderful his queen was. And so he turned To Queen Vashti, he went and asked uh, a eunuch, go and get Queen Vashti so she can march in front of the people because of how lovely she was to look at. And so what he wanted is the men of that city and the people of Susa to gawk at his wife. Now, naturally, this queen was not flattered by this, but she was offended. In verse 12, we find out this. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Queen Vashti had the audacity to say, Not today. I am not a piece of meat to be dragged out and to be gawked at. No thanks, King Asurius. Well, (laughs) the king panics. Oh my goodness, my queen disobeyed me. What am I going to do? well, the noblemen and the people gathered together and they came together and he shows his concern in verse 17 and 18 because he says something I think that's quite funny to the eunuchs and the noblemen and the people who are in charge around him. He said, For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Asarius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. So he was panicked that others would start, these other women would rally around Queen Vashti, and they would become women like her, disobeying their husbands. Well, this could not be tolerated, and so he had to do something about it. And so there was a two-fold solution that was presented to King Assyrius, and King Assyrius liked this twofold solution. In verse 19b, we find out what it is. Vashti, or excuse me, let's just start in verse 19. If it pleases the king... Let the royal order go out from him and let it not be, so that it may, be, may not be repealed. That Queen Vashti is to never come before King Asurius, never come before King Asurius, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So rather than Vashti just being killed, which could have happened, Queen Vashti is to never see King Asurius again, and she is now, she is no longer the queen. And so something's going to happen to take place after that. Somebody is going to take her place. This pleased the king, verse 21, and the princes and the king did as, as Memucan proposed it. He sent letters to all the world provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, to every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now, I'll just say this. When men or cultures define marriage, things go really, really bad, generally for women, but usually for both men and women. We need God to tell us about marriage more than edicts coming from a king or from our culture or from the world. When God gives commands, to tell hus- he tells husbands to love. Notice that the king only tells wives what to do and says nothing about husbands. But when God gives commands to husbands, he tells us to love our wives and wives to respect their husbands. God's design for marriage is always better than man-made rules or culture-made rules for marriage. You end up losing marriage, actually. And so we're going to talk more about that after our series on Esther. I just wanted to say that because it, it was intriguing as I read it. But now, there's no queen on the throne. There's no queen for King Assyrius. And remember, so far, all of this seems pretty pointless. It just seems like a party. It seems like there's okay. There's a a queen that upset her king, and it just seems pointless. There's nothing going on here. There's no mention of God. But God is at work. So there's a plan. Look at verse 1 through 4 in chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Assyrius had abated, he remembered Vashti. And what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let the cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. So there's a plan. Here's what we're going to do. Get all the beautiful young women, and we're going to gather them together, and we're going to put them in a harem. And we'll see this in a bit. The king, King Assyrius had two harems. He had one for those who were being prepared to be either a wife or a concubine. So they would be in one, the virgin harem. And then there would be a concubine harem. And these women would go for a year, and they would get cosmetics, they would, get, they would go to Sephora and say, Sephora is now here, it's yours, and they would go to whatever, they would get pedicures, and uh, or as my father calls them, footicures, and, uh, and I've kind of picked that up as well. They would get uh, skin treatments, they would get you name it, and these, these virgins would be beautified for the year, and then after a year, they would go in for one night with the king. And things that we're not going to speak about now would happen during that one night and they would either be accepted or rejected by the king and then they would go into the concubine's uh, harem. And so this was the plan. We're going to find a queen in this year of beautification. Over the next year, we're going to find a new queen for King Asurius. And we'll gather the most beautiful women in all the land and we're going to find one just for him. Well, this pleased the king and we get now introduced to Mordecai, And to Esther, look at verse 5, chapter 2. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along with the captives, carried away with Jacobian of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai. And had charge of the women, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. Portion of food. And with the seven young men or women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So now we're introduced to the first two Jewish people in the story, Mordecai. Mordecai was a Benjaminite, Benjaminite. He was a Benjamite who had been in exile and the story was told and he was remained, he didn't get to go back to Jerusalem. He remained when Persia overthrew Babylon and he was raising his cousin, Esther. So he was not Esther's cousin. I admit, as I studied this, I thought he always thought he was her uncle. He is her cousin. Raising his younger, uh, his younger cousin. And Esther was a beautiful woman. So, if you just think about it, every culture has, has standards of beauty. And every culture has what, a, a, a good looking woman and a good looking man in every single society. And that's always going to be the case. And this woman, by every definition of what it looked like to be a beautiful woman in Susa, she was objectively pretty. She was very, very pretty woman. And so she caught the eye when the eunuchs went out looking for these pretty women. They saw that one right there, and they went and said, You're coming with us. And Mordecai and her remained in this father-daughter type relationship to where in the harem Mordecai still had access to go and talk to her. And the king, we find out, did like Esther in verse 9. We're told that uh, uh, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. So they're out of this harem of virgins... She and seven other women rose to the top and she got all the benefits of being the most beautiful woman in this harem and she got all the best cosmetics. Again, she got whatever, probably stuff that's even better than Sephora. It's probably out there. Okay, She got all of that and all the women's stuff, the best of the best, because she was the most beautiful of the most beautiful in the harem. She rose to the top, the king's favorite. But she had with her, she had carried with her in her back pocket a secret that nobody knew about. She was a Jewish woman. And Mordecai told her, Esther, whatever you do, don't tell anyone that you are Jewish. Don't tell them. You've got to keep it secret. Mordecai told her to hide. Now, this is interesting. Because we notice a few things about Esther and Mordecai that at times, although Esther and Mordecai, at times we need to emulate them to the positive. There are times through this book, we have a tendency with the book of Esther, because uh, with, with ladies, bad people say that the book, the Bible is anti-women. It is not at all. It's very pro-women. But they want to look and celebrate, say, so look at Esther, and they make her just this moral example, and look, she's awesome, and you're a queen too, and rah, rah, rah. Thank goodness, ladies be more of a woman than that kind of nonsense, okay? Esther, she, had, she was a normal woman. She was a heroine who was just like you. She, she wasn't morally superior to everybody else. She didn't walk around with all the right answers. She didn't hit the ball out of the park every time. She made some mistakes, and at times she was embarrassed of her nationality. She was embarrassed of her God. When Mordecai told Esther to keep it a secret, she agreed. And they, at times, Mordecai and Esther both display less than honorable character. And we're going to see that as we go through this book, that some of Esther's behavior will shock you. Some of the character of Mordecai is going to shock you. And this is just one example of that fact. To hide the fact that Esther was a Jewish woman would necessitate her willing participation in pagan beautifying practice and pagan culture. The very thing God told his people not to do in the promised land. Unlike Joseph, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who said, We will not bow the knee. We will publicly worship God. Or Daniel, who said, I will pray three times a day, no matter what edict goes out. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego saying, hey, listen, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, we will not deny him. Throw us in the furnace. We're going to keep praying. But here is Mordecai and here is Esther hiding the fact, requiring them to participate in pagan practices. We have to ask some serious questions about this woman. She is a woman just like, she's just a normal woman. Esther and Mordecai would not publicly honor and worship the Lord. She would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and now she would not worship God visibly. And yet, God used Esther and Mordecai. In verse 11, we find that Esther and Mordecai stayed in this communication. Hey, how are things going, Esther? Are you doing okay? And Esther would talk to her father figure, Mordecai, and tell him how things are going. In 12 to 18, there, things develop, and her year is up, and she has her night with the king. We pick it up in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king's, to King Asurius, After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of the beautifying, since six months with oil and of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of she says something. The king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. And keeps going. Verse fifteen. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Assyrius into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. So he granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So after a year of beautification and preparation in the virgin's harem, remember the second harem is the concubine harem, now it's Esther's turn. And commentators are split on this. and I want to be careful. Esther so pleased the king that night, whether it was through sensuality or whatever, or maybe not, he made her his wife and queen that very day. And now Esther is married to a pagan king, something that God strictly prohibits. It's a direct violation against God's law. And you may say, yes, but she was forced to do this, she had no other option, she had no other choice. But Joseph, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were forced to do some things also. And they said, over our dead body. She had a choice in this. But what we find out about this woman, even though we don't exactly know everything that went on that night, Esther is a woman who has her ups and her downs. She's just like any other hero heroine in the Bible, imperfect with indwelling sin. She's an imperfect hero. Her bravery, her time of bravery and courage would come and she would step up to the moment in which God called her to. But not yet. Not yet. We should emulate Esther's bravery. But we should not emulate the times when she is unfaithful to the Lord. She's a woman in process. Let me ask you ladies, because I want you to, as we think about this, are there any women in process here? Is there any women in process? (laughs) I raised my hand. (laughs) No. She's in process. She's just like you. I mean, what would you be feeling in that moment? Scared? nervous panicky emotional not knowing up from down or right from left or right from wrong powerful man wanting you seeing you as beautiful liking you and getting your attention from him more than any other woman in the harem you have the eye of xerxes which is assurius that's his other name you have the eye of xerxes upon you and here is esther Now the queen. And then in 19 through 23, we see this kind of a twist of, of providence. What ends up happening in 19 through 23 is that Mordecai and Esther, we find out, still are able to maintain this relationship. Verse 19, it says this. Now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai. Just as when she was brought up by him, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Ter- Teresh, there's a name for your child if you're looking for Big Bigthan, Bigthan uh, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on the king on King Ahasuerus. It came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so. The men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles, the presence of the king. Mordecai is now brought into the story, and Mordecai is now going to play a central role in this story in the book of Esther. He will be used by God as well. This is a story about how God uses both Esther and Mordecai to save his people from destruction. Mordecai shows great concern and he cares about Esther and we'll find out that he cares about the Jewish people's preservation. And his role will show us and give us a glimpse of Christ in the book of Esther. We're going to see Christ themes through this. Now, so as we set the stage today, what are we to make of all this? What is this? going to be about. Let's let's try from chapters 1 and 2 to get a summary statement. Let's get a summary paragraph and then let's try to ask the question, what does this mean for us? What we just talked about today, what does this mean for us? What implications are there for us from chapters 1 and 2? Let's first start with a, a summary statement of kind of what we we talked about today. This book is not a story about a perfect godly woman. She's a woman with ups and downs. Esther sins and does not seem all that zealous for the worship of God. At times, she should be emulated, as we stated before, for her bravery. At other times, we must learn from her her mistakes and sins. This is the story. This is a story. In the end, this is a story of God's providence and power. He accomplishes His purposes even in pagan Persia. God was at work in this decade when God seemed absent. And when God seems absent now, He is present. So what does this mean for us? Okay, here's some good news. Uh, God uses imperfect people. Anybody else happy about that? If, If you're in Christ, you're counted perfect. You're counted righteous. Before a holy God, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When we talk about perfect language, I want to be careful to distinguish two aspects of perfection that I'm talking about here. To to come to a holy God, you have to perfectly obey God's law. Perfectly. Okay? Jesus came to do that in your place, in the place of sinners for the glory of God. He obeyed God's laws perfectly. Therefore, for those who have repented and believed in Jesus, you have a credit of perfection over your life. Perfect. Perfect. You're counted perfect. But you are not yet actually perfect, and that's evidenced in your life. If you claim to be perfect, say, no, I'm actually perfect. I'm actually a perfect person, except for the fact that you're a very much a liar because you're not perfect. God only uses imp- actually imperfect people. So if you come to church and you think, well, there's a bunch of goody 2 shoes perfect people around, um, no, there should be moral change in us. We should be wanting to be more Christ-like and growing in Christ-like humility. There should be growth in obeying God. But for the rest of our lives, we will always remain actually imperfect. God only uses us. That's who he has to work with here. We are imperfect people. Esther was an imperfect woman. So we are in good company. Mordecai was an imperfect man. We see how vicious later on. We see revenge rise up in Esther and Mordecai to a degree that it's going to make us feel a little uncomfortable. And so she's an imperfect woman. God only uses imperfect people. Mordecai, Esther. And the best of us are a mixture of indwelling sin and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Nobody in here gets to escape this fact. You are in a spiritual war. In a spiritual war. The flesh and the spirit are at war within you. And there are two things that are going on in you. When we want to grow this year in 2019, you want to become a better person, a more Christ-like person. Here's what's going to happen, I promise you. If you want to change, you better be geared up for a war. Our personalities need to change. It's not just behaviors that need to change. Who we are needs to change. And if who we are is going to change, attitudes, characters from the inside out, you better be geared up for a war. The the enemy hates you and the flesh inside of you hates you. And the Spirit of God is in us to continually remind us of Jesus. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. Come on, get up, press on. There's no condemnation. And when you hear that, there's no condemnation. You get up and you rise and you keep fighting. You keep fighting and you keep fighting. But you have this mixture and we see this in the book of Esther. There is this mixture of pure motives and wrong motives all over the place. But here's what we know. Failure in the battle does not disqualify us from being used by God. At times, you go through a season of your life and it feels like, man, you are victorious. You were overcoming sin. Your Bible reading plan, you are up to, you are up to snuff in that. I mean, the, the books you've read, you've already read five books this year and it's only the 6th of January. You're flying high. You're not even going to go home and watch football. You're going to go home and pray today. I mean, you're doing really, really well. There's going to be times that you feel like that. And here's what I promise you this year. There's going to be times you're going to feel like you're getting your butt kicked. I'm trying to, I'm, We're teaching Ransom to not say B-U-T-T, so sorry about that, um, for name-calling, because he calls people that name all the time. But actually, we can call it that, but not name-calling. So there's going to be times where it's going to feel like that, where you're getting it handed to you. And you need to be reminded, we need to be reminded that failure does not disqualify us from being used by God. Life is full of ups and downs and then choices that we make. Sometimes things happen to us. That's what life is. There are times that it feels like, it truly will seem like, God is actually, you feel his tangible presence in the room right now with you, and you feel it deep down in your heart, this great joy that's just overflowing. And it's like this moment of joy is about to burst inside you. I'm so excited. Life is so good. God is good. Grace. Jesus. Family. Fish. You catch your fish. Yes. And there's going to be times this year, it feels like God's absent. And two months, three months, six months, where you're crying out in the Psalms, God, where are you? You feel so far from me. Where are you? And The pages of your Bible are going to be bent up, and they're going to have those spots on it because your tears are going to be right on the pages. And you're going to feel like God's abandoned you. And the book of Esther is going to remind us that When it seems like God is absent, He's at work. Hang in there. He's not abandoned His people, and He will not abandon you. Even if you are faithless right now, He is faithful. He will not abandon His people. When we are faithless, He is faithful. The book of Esther shows us this. God did not use Esther because of Esther's moral superiority. God used Esther because He was gracious to her and she was available. What we see in this book is a story of God's grace to His undeserving people. God saves. He truly does save His people and then He empowers His people to overcome their enemy. Not only were they not destroyed and killed, they killed 75,000 people. He empowers us. He doesn't just deliver us, but He now empowers us to overcome the enemy. God was faithful to Esther and Israel because Jesus and his future faithfulness. This is the very nature of the gospel. There is a difference between Esther and Mordecai and Jesus. Esther and Mordecai, heroes. Jesus, the hero. The, capital T-H-E, capital H-E-R-O. The hero behind every hero or heroine in the Bible. Jesus, the real thing. The real deal, the real keeper of the covenant, who didn't back down and shrink back with God's law because of the pressure of Susa or Persia or Rome or the, Philist or, or the uh, Pharisees or Sadducees. He is the one who didn't shrivel up, but visibly obeyed God even to the point of death, the real hero, the real savior. And you, like Esther and Mordecai, me, like Esther and Mordecai, we're a mixed bag Breaking God's law, there's no excuse. We deserve to be punished for our sins. Deserved to be punished. If you're not a Christian, there's a reason that you feel shame. If you are a Christian, there's no reason to feel shame. If you are not a Christian, there's reason to feel shame. If you're not a Christian, don't ignore that shame. As if shame in this life, pop psychology will say, if you're experiencing shame, it's a psychological problem. No, it's not. It's a spiritual reality. People experience shame because... I'm not talking about being sinned against shame. You shouldn't feel shame for being sinned against. But you feel a shame for your actions, you should. That's conscience and that's God reminding you that you are broken and you are sinful and you have sinned against God. But there is hope. Jesus lived and obeyed his heavenly father perfectly. Imagine if you're, okay, when when Ransom obeys, when I just see him take his dirty socks and put them in the laundry, it's like a celebration happens in the house. Oh, yes, here's an M&M, you know, way to go, buddy, I'm proud of you, you know, you picked up your dirty clothes, and some of you wives are thinking that about your husbands, right? Not me, I've got that mastered. We celebrate when our children, just this small acts of obedience, like, oh, yeah, oh, when a father sees his son obeying, I'm so proud of you, boy, way to go, I'm proud of your compassion, your love, yes, your, your ability to stand up for what's right, that's awesome, Jesus obeyed His Heavenly Father perfect. Perfect. Putting His socks where they're supposed to go or His dirty sandals by the door where they were supposed to go. Every moment of every day in your place. Obeying the Heavenly Father, doing what the Heavenly Father wanted Him to do in your place. And then He died in your place for all your rebellion so that God can be happy with you and bless you and lavish you with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. In Christ, God counts you as living the, ver- the very life that Jesus lived. So two things, Christians. God is at work in your life right now. It may not seem like it. It may seem like this season of your life is arbitrary, pointless, may seem like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. But this book, book tells us, over a 10-year span, something that's communicated over thousands of years, God is at work. In your eternity and in your milliseconds, God is at work. The destruction of Persia is coming. Hold on. The destruction of Persia is coming. Hold on. For the non-Christians, God's enemies always lose. Just say it. God's enemies always lose. And if you are not a Christian, you are his enemy. There's no neutrality in this thing called life. You're not a Christian. You're God's enemy. But he loves you. He loves his enemies. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus today. And although you walk through those doors this morning, his enemy, you can walk out those doors, his friend, fully forgiven of all your sins. No shame, no condemnation. This is a glorious story, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the book of Esther. Uh, God, you are. You're hidden in obvious obvious sight. I mean, plain sight. I mean, you're just right there. All over the book, help us as we go through this. Just like we, we're just walking a dirt road, just like Esther and Mordecai, we're just just like them, commoners, called to do something incredible. God, just do a work over these next five weeks. Just just work. Help us as we study this book. Do a work in us even now, Holy Spirit. I trust that you'll lead in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing and if you want to pray about anything that I'm up here, I would love to pray with you or you can pray with a friend.